previously on Betrayed. It just seemed so bizarre. This man had gone on a test drive and he hadn't come back. In the spring of 2013, Tim Bosma put his truck up for sale online, went for a test drive with two prospective buyers, and was never seen alive again. There was a betrayal of public trust, you know, people thinking, wow, I can't sell something online, it could be dangerous. Cell phone evidence led police to a key witness who also had a Dodge Ram 3500 truck for sale. That witness had taken two men who matched the suspect's descriptions for a test drive the day before Tim Bosma disappeared. This new witness was able to provide police with a further detail, a tattoo of the word ambition on one of the suspect's arms. Within days, Dellen Millard, 27 years old, from Toronto, was arrested, and shortly after that, police arrested his close friend, Mark Smitch. 25 years of Oakville, Ontario. Both were charged with the first-degree murder of Tim Bosma. Bosma's truck was found in a trailer parked at Millard's mother's house. His remains were found on a farm belonging to Millard inside a piece of farm equipment used for disposing of farm animals, a portable incinerator called an eliminator. I'm Tina Pitaway. On this episode of Betrayed, we take a look inside the motivations of murderers Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch. This was some kind of weird, sick, twisted game for them. And we hear from an expert who has studied the methods and motivations of hundreds of psychopaths. Psychopathic individuals know what they're doing is wrong. They simply don't care. Dark Ambition, Part 2. In 2013, Dellen Millard was a wealthy young man. He had inherited millions of dollars worth of property, including an airplane hangar from his father Wayne, who had died by apparent suicide the previous year. Mark Smitch was a petty criminal who had known Millard for years. Text messages and video evidence led police to charge them both with the first-degree murder of Tim Bosma. Their trial took place in the winter of 2016, close to three years after Bosma's murder. Were these two just looking to murder someone? In my opinion, the evidence at the Bosma trial did indeed prove that. Yes, I'm completely convinced. They, this was some kind of weird, sick, twisted game for them. Anne Brocklehurst is a journalist and licensed private investigator. She attended every day of the trial. They had a very bizarre relationship. The conventional wisdom is that Millard was very much the controlling figure and the one who called the shots. And yes, in, in some ways he did, but in other ways, I mean, here was Smitch, who never had a job, 
sort of freeloading off Millard, living in his house. He had these big expectations that Millard would build him a studio in which he could record his raps and, and become a star. And Millard would show for him all over. Smitch didn't have a driver's license, so he was always calling Millard for lifts and things like that. They each seemed to have a certain hold over the other. On the one hand, you can say, well, Smitch was financially dependent on Millard. On the other hand, you can say, well, why was Millard financing Smitch? Smitch wound up moving into uh, Millard's home, which was, which was his father's home. Uh, can you describe a little bit about that whole crew of people and, and what was going on and the father in the background? So Millard, several years before the Bosma murder, he had cultivated this group of, at the time, high school boys who were several years younger than him, four or five probably, which isn't a huge age difference later on in life, but it's pretty big at that time, gave them drugs. He had drug parties at his house, and, you know, he'd take them out to the hangar where he had all his cool toys, planes, cars, etc. And his father was a bit of a hermit-like figure, a kind of recluse in the background, living at the house, shut in his bedroom. He was an alcoholic, and Millard sort of had the run of the house. And in a sense, this group of friends were bought and paid for. And in their texts back and forth uh, between Millard and Smitch, there were references that tied them to this crime, weren't there? Yeah, so they were, I mean, they never said in text messages, we're going to kill someone. They had a kind of code, like their thefts and their murders, they referred to as missions. They called the eliminator the barbecue. And there were some text messages, and one of those text messages was Millard saying to Smitch, uh, barbecue is the last piece of the 3500 puzzle. And of course, barbecue refers to the eliminator, and 3500 refers to the type of truck. So it's saying we have to have the barbecue ready for the 3500 mission, which shows that they planned that they were going to kill and incinerate someone. And Smitch replied to that text message. I like barbecue and I like 3500. That's pretty incontrovertible proof in my mind, given all the other evidence that this is what they planned and they were looking forward to it. The randomness of Tim Bosma's murder left Ancaster reeling. Although the perpetrators were swiftly identified and arrested, nothing could diminish the shock that something so violent and cruel could have happened to a much-loved member of the Ancaster community. In the aftermath of Tim Bosma's murder, people in Ancaster and far beyond started to question whether they could still trust the random connections that are made online. There was a betrayal of public trust, you know, people thinking, wow, I can't sell something online, it could be dangerous. So our sense of confidence in being able to do some things that people normally do was very much shaken. I think, you know, a lot of Millard's friends 
were shocked by this. They knew that Millard liked life on the edge. They couldn't imagine that he would be a murderer. The same with friends of Smitch and his family. They couldn't believe it. In February 2016, the trial of Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch got underway. Heading into it, there was one big question on everyone's mind. We didn't know if Millard and Smitch would testify. Millard decided not to take the stand. So a lot of people thought Smitch might not testify as well, and then he did. For most observers, given what was already known and reported, this wasn't a trial about whether or not the accused were guilty. This was a trial about the how and the why of the crime. Now remember, it made no difference in the eyes of the law which of the two suspects shot Tim Bosma. Both would be guilty merely by being involved in the theft of the truck, a theft that was clearly a targeted crime. Even so, people were anxious to learn who shot Tim Bosma, to know exactly what happened that night. So Mark Smitch's testimony was a critical moment. He walked into the witness box and told his story, and I thought there were some really big holes in his story. He said that they drove on this test drive from Ancaster outside Hamilton to Brantford, which is a very long test drive. And Millard's holding a gun to Bosma, according to his description of things, and then just shoots him on a test drive, which is another hard-to-imagine story if you think about the logistics of it. And I think one of the things that's really hard for people to accept with regard to crimes like this is that we can't know. We can't know who shot Tim Bosma because only Della Millard and Mark Smitch know. And if they don't tell the truth, we're not going to find out. The girlfriends of Millard and Smitch were also called to testify. People always like to hear from the girlfriends. Mark Smitch's girlfriend, Marlena Meneses, she was quite a sympathetic witness and a very key witness because the thing she said that was the most shocking was she testified that when Millard and Smitch came to pick her up early in the morning after they had spent the night incinerating Tim Bosma, that they were very happy and they said they wanted to celebrate. So that was absolutely a shocking moment at the trial. And then in walks Christina Nudga. Christina Nudga was Millard's girlfriend. By this point, Christina Nudga was well known to police as well as those following the case. She'd been arrested about a year after Millard and Smitch's arrests. And she was charged as an accessory after the fact to that murder, which means she knew there was a murder and she helped to conceal it. That's what accessory after the fact is. She arrived at the courthouse. It was a cold day in April. And Christina Nudga had a scarf draped all over her head and sunglasses so you could barely see an inch of her face. So there was this very dramatic entrance into the courthouse. And then she takes the witness stand. Her rudeness was just astonishing. She showed 
no awareness that she was testifying at a murder case, that the victim's family was sitting in the front row. She never mentioned Tim Bosma's name, or I should correct myself, she mentioned it once after days on the witness stand. She was just one of the most unlikable witnesses you'll ever see. Much of what Nudga was asked about centered on materials police had seized when they arrested her on the original accessory charge. As is fairly typical, they went into her house, her bedroom, with a search warrant, and they open up the drawer to her bedside table, and what do they find but dozens of letters that Millard had written her from jail. Well, the police were just shocked because she was one of the people on his do not contact list, which means legally he was forbidden by a court order from contacting Christina Nudga. And it was just an absolute treasure trove of evidence. He wants Christina to witness tamper. He wants other witnesses to change their stories. It's just astonishing. It's essentially his roadmap for getting himself out of the huge mess, for lack of a better word, that he's in. Millard had told Nudga to destroy the letters he was sending her. But inexplicably, she never did that. Other evidence found in her bedroom included a video digital recorder from the Millard air hangar. And that had a a short clip of Smitch and Millard at the hangar on the night when they murdered Tim Bosma, so it put them both together at the hangar that night, looking very unperturbed, as if they didn't have a care in the world. That's so bizarre. Why, why, would, they, why would they want that? It is bizarre, yes. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it's strange. And why did Nudga hang on to it? Like you'd think at one time she would have junked it, just thrown it in a waste paper basket or something, a trash can on the street. I don't know. It's, it's one of those questions we can't answer. In the end, she pleaded to a lesser charge, obstructing justice. Other evidence presented at the trial included video of the Eliminator being towed to the Millard air hangar. There was also video of a pickup truck matching Bosma's being driven to the hangar the night he disappeared, followed by Millard's SUV. Shortly after, video evidence showed the Eliminator being ignited. It burned throughout the night. Two figures that, from a distance, matched Millard and Smitch were present on those tapes. In June 2016, after a grueling four-and-a-half-month trial, Millard and Smitch were both found guilty of the first-degree murder of Tim Bosma. They were sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Justice for Tim! For three years, we have been in and out of this courthouse, forced to look at and breathe the same, in the same space with the utter depths of depravity in our society. We have had to endure being near the two men that walked down my driveway on May 6, 2013 and took away the bright life in our lives that was Tim. The story of Della Millard and Mark Smitch's crimes doesn't end here. 
Listening to Charlene Bosma speak on the day her husband's killers were convicted, I thought back to something Hamilton's chief of police, Glenn DeCare, said in the days following Tim's disappearance. This, the great community of Hamilton, has rallied in support of finding Tim. In Hamilton, a crime against one is a crime against all. Every missing person deserves the full efforts of our police services. But while every missing person most certainly deserves the full efforts of police, some would argue not every person is granted them. When Della Millard's name first hit the news, it set off alarms for the friends and family of one of Millard's ex-girlfriends, a woman named Laura Babcock. It's an awful story. I mean, the disappearance of, of Laura is, is just a terrible story. She went missing almost a year before Tim Bosma, and the police really blew it with that investigation. Something happened there. We're not sure what. The file was lost. Uh, the original officer was transferred off the case. They never even investigated her phone bill, which showed that the last eight telephone calls she had made had been to Della Millard. They never questioned Della Millard. In the days and weeks that followed Laura's disappearance, Laura's ex-boyfriend, a man named Sean Lerner, urged the Toronto Police Service to question Della Millard. He brought them the phone bill showing that the last calls were to Della Millard. He told them, go talk to Della Millard, and when the police didn't do it, Sean Lerner went and met Millard him, himself and found what he had to say very suspicious and got back to the police and said, look, you really need to talk to him. But for some reason, the police never did. And the investigation seems to have completely petered out until Sean Lerner heard on the news that Dellen Millard had been arrested for the Tim Bosma murder. Laura Babcock was 23 years old when she went missing in the summer of 2012. she just graduated from the University of Toronto, where she had studied English and drama. She had aspirations to be a television star or a movie star, and those aspirations weren't panning out, and she was sort of at a loss about what to do. She'd had mental health issues for many years, and everything came to a head. Laura struggled with depression and extreme anxiety. Shortly before her disappearance, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, a serious mental illness that burdens those who have it with extreme instability in their moods, their relationships, and their behavior. In the months running up to her disappearance, Laura had also gotten involved in the online sex trade. Babcock and Millard dated briefly in early 2012, until Millard started seeing Christina Nudga. Millard and Babcock remained in touch with one another, which led to tensions between Nudga and Millard. And that led to problems, and it eventually led to Laura's murder. In the aftermath of Tim Bosma's murder, Toronto police reopened the investigation into Laura's disappearance. In April 2014, police charged Smitch and Millard with the first-degree murder of Laura Babcock. Police also reopened the investigation into Wayne Millard's 2012 suicide. He died from a single gunshot wound to the head. 
But there was something unusual about his suicide. In a twist that is not the norm for self-inflicted gunshots, the bullet that killed Wayne Millard was shot directly into his left eye. Dellen Millard's DNA was found on the gun that was used in the shooting. On April 10, 2014, the same day he was charged with the murder of Laura Babcock, Dellen Millard was charged with the first-degree murder of his father. So even though Laura was killed before Tim Bosma, the trial for her murder didn't take place until a year and a half after the Bosma trial, more than five years after her disappearance. In December of 2017, Mark Smitch and Dellen Millard were found guilty of the first-degree murder in the death of Laura Babcock. They were sentenced to 25 years in prison to be served consecutively to their sentence for Tim Bosma's murder, meaning they won't be eligible for parole for 50 years. The evidence suggested Laura was murdered and her body disposed of in the Eliminator. Laura's remains have never been found. Laura's family believes her history of mental health issues, combined with her brief involvement in the sex trade, diminished the seriousness with which the police approached her initial disappearance. Following Millard and Smitch's sentencing for Laura Babcock's murder, Laura's father, Clayton Babcock, spoke outside the courthouse. If there ever was a reason to punish to the full extent of the law, this was it. Somehow life imprisonment seems lenient when Laura didn't even get to see her 24th birthday. We can be assured that these horrible specimens of humanity will not come outside of a prison for decades to come. There seem to be others who knew or suspected that something had happened to Laura. Shame on you. And through your inactions may have unwittingly assisted in the demise of two other innocent people. It is very scary to think that these individuals are out there preying on us. They're very good at casting a wide net to find vulnerable individuals. Dr. Adele Forth is an expert on psychopaths and the director of the Psychopathy Research Lab at Carleton University in Ottawa. Psychological profiles of Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch have never been released publicly, so Dr. Forth can't speak to their cases specifically. But much of what was revealed at the trial in terms of behaviors and actions overlaps with psychopathic traits. Things like... They're manipulative and deceitful and grandiose and arrogant. They lack remorse. They lack a conscience. They lack empathy, compassion for others. They're chameleons. Over the years, Dr. Forth has observed hundreds of psychopaths to try to gain a better understanding of the emotional and cognitive processes that exist within their minds. So they'll try different tactics. Yeah, they, 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 will, they will do what works. For psychopaths, one of the first steps in identifying a potential victim is to find someone who shows signs of vulnerability. One study that Dr. Forth devised involved having psychopaths observe the way people walk. We get individuals who have been unfortunately sexually victimized or violently victimized uh, and walk down the hallway and we videotape them. Then we show this videotape to individuals with psychopathic traits and all they're seeing is they're reading cues of vulnerability from the walking gait. 
And individuals with psychopathic traits are actually better at identifying potential victims just by using gate. It's, it's, it's very scary to think of. Um, they're also better at displaying a range of emotions that they don't feel. Over time, they've learned that emotions are a good way to manipulate others, so they've learned to mimic emotions. So we've, we've asked them to mimic facial expressions, let's say, of fear. You and I might have a hard time trying to, uh, you know, when we're not really feeling, feeling fear, to mimic that facial expressions. Psychopaths are very good at that. Dr. Forth has also studied how easily and convincingly psychopaths lie. The other thing they're, they're good at is appearing trustworthy. This was something that really stood out for Anne Brocklehurst throughout Mark Smitch's testimony. What was it clear that he was lying about? There were a number of things. So, for example, he had the gun that we believe was used to kill Tim Bosma, and the gun just disappeared, and he had a fantastical story about he, how he took the gun and buried it somewhere in a forest, a forest near Oakville. But he couldn't give any of the details about where this forest was, how he buried the gun, how he got there at night on his bike. So it was obvious that he was lying about the gun. Then, at this point, we, the journalists, knew that Smitch and Millard had been charged with an earlier murder. The jury didn't know the details. So Smitch said during his testimony that this was unimaginable, that nothing like this had ever happened before. And we knew that he was charged with Laura Babcock's murder. The jury didn't know that. And people really wanted to believe Smitch's story, and they did. It was a good short narrative. I mean, it, in a way, it said there aren't two people who are this evil. There's only one, and I got sucked in, and that's a preferable narrative to believing that two people could do this together. And people believed Smitch's story. I got a phone call. I remember walking home from the trial from a friend of mine who had followed the case. And she said to me, what do you think of the reaction to this, to his testimony? And I said, I'm really shocked. Dr. Adele Forth. So we've done research where we've asked an individual with psychopathic traits to tell a story that's fake, but pretending they felt a lot of remorse for this. Right to tell, say, you know, whatever story is not true, then we videotape them, and sure enough, the people telling the story, the more psychopathic traits they have, raters, observers, rate them as more genuine and trustworthy, even though everyone's telling a fake story. The callousness and the carelessness demonstrated by the texts and other evidence Smitch and Millard left behind also speak to common characteristics and impulses of psychopaths. They don't really care if they hurt other people. They don't have the same things that would inhibit most of us. You and I have things that would inhibit us from engaging in antisocial or criminal acts or acts that would hurt others. All of that is missing with someone with psychopathic traits. So they don't have the same boundaries of rules and regulations that the rest of us do. They don't show much anxiety. They don't show much fear. They're willing to take risks that most individuals aren't. Jeffrey Dahmer, when the first time he killed, he was 16. 
He was he had killed someone. He put the body parts in the back seat of his mom's car and was driving it to a dump. He got stopped by the police. So he has garbage bags of his victim in the back seat. Now you and I might panic if we're stopped by the police. He stayed calm, cool, and collected. And at 2 a.m., yes, I'm taking my mom's garbage to the dump. They talk their way out of things better as well. There are individuals who are insane. They don't realize, they don't um, understand what they're doing is wrong. Psychopathic individuals know what they're doing is wrong. They often plan these offenses to try and get away with it. They know it's morally wrong, it's legally wrong, they simply don't care. Smith says that after the murder, he was scared. And yet all the text messages between Millard and Smith show them interacting even playfully at times. They don't seem to have a concern in the world. In September 2018, nearly six years after Wayne Millard's death was initially deemed a suicide, Dylan Millard was found guilty of the first-degree murder of his father. He was given a third consecutive life sentence. Dylan Millard will not be eligible to apply for parole for 75 years. Anne Brocklehurst is the author of Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch. It has in-depth coverage of the trial and evidence that led to their convictions for the murder of Tim Bosma. Next time on Betrayed. I kept saying, well, why do you have to kill me? Why is it so important that you need to kill me? The shocking story of a woman who was attacked by a serial killer and survived. He um, pulled a knife out and he said, that's the last ride you're ever going to take. And he said, okay, now I have to kill you. And I said, no, really. I said, you don't have to kill me. I said, I'm not going to the cops. Elaine Anton's story is told in Mad Blood Stirring, the inner lives of violent men, from author Damon Fairless. I wanted to know what it was like inside the mind of a serial killer. Mad Blood Stirring is the culmination of years Damon spent poring over research and trying to figure out what drives male violence, both in himself. If I saw someone, a guy, uh, being an asshole, being aggressive, being a bully, I felt a switch go off and I would confront that guy. And in psychopaths. They're human beings who don't have the capacity for compassion. Once you don't have compassion, you can do terrible things. That's coming up in our next episode. For more on the books featured in this series, including Anne Brocklehurst's Dark Ambition, and to sign up for our newsletter, visit our website at betrayedpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Betrayed Podcast. Betrayed is a production of Penguin Random House Canada. It's written and produced by me, Tina Pitaway, with story editing and sound design by Paolo Pietropalo. Editorial oversight by Bhavna Chohan, Melanie Titino, and Rachel Brown. Special thanks to Kristen Cochran, Robert Wheaton, Beth Lockley, Shannon Poos, Abdi Omer, and Laura Chapnick. <laughs>